The following audio is from a sermon series from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 10, verses 15 through 22. As I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, it is not a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, it is not a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one bread... We who are many are of one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. Well, good morning. Uh, let me get situated here. I want to echo the happy Father's Day uh, to all you fathers, those acting as fathers. Uh, today's kind of a special day for me. It's my first Father's Day, um, and so that's pretty, pretty cool. Um, and I get to spend it with my dad, too, so I'm really excited to to have this afternoon. Um, today we're setting out on a course. I mean, I can hear myself. I'm going to back up just a little bit. Today we're setting out on a course, and I've got two objectives for, for this sermon. First one is that I want to convey to you the exclusivity of Christianity, that, that this text today shows us that, that God calls Christians to worship him and him alone. And the second thing I want to show is, is the sacredness of the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to pray specifically for our text uh, and we'll, we'll just get cracking right away. So, Lord, uh, we thank you. We thank you that you've spoken to us uh, in your word, that you've, you've given us something to cherish and something to treasure and something to, uh, uh, to understand you greater by. So, not only did, the, did you give us your word, but this word became flesh and dwelt among us and it showed us what you're like. And so as we explore our text today, would you, would you open our eyes to see that you are the only one who's worthy of our worship, that you are the only one who, who we can call Father? Um, and then would you show us how you've given us good gifts like uh, worship and prayer and, and it's specifically the Lord's Supper? So would you be with me? I'm, I'm a man who can speak and mis- make mistakes. I'm, I'm, ask my wife, I'm, I'm very sinful. And so would you use a sinful man like me would you use me to convey your truth? Would you use me to, to convey the glory of the Lord this morning um, and, and allow us to meditate and, and bask in those truths? Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, in your Bibles, your apps, if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles back there on those steps. Um, I want to give you a little bit, I want to give you the backdrop for which uh, our text comes to us today. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and now the Corinthian culture is a polytheistic culture. That means that, that there are multiple gods in this culture and that it's acceptable to worship multiple gods at the same time. And the reason that it's acceptable is because these gods, they, they all claim something a little bit different. They all require something different from the worshiper. So one god might require a pigeon sacrifice and another god might require you to wear like a, a weird necklace and rub it. 
And another God might require you to, to walk around town with your eyes closed. So you got a guy just stumbling around town, eyes closed. Guys are like, what are you doing? You know, I got a pigeon rubbing your necklace, eyes closed, bumping into things. It's like, I'm just, I'm heading to worship. And like, that's okay. Like, he looks like a fool. And that's kind of the norm. That's a cultural norm. And so what we see with the Corinthian church is that they're being influenced by this cultural norm. And what it's doing, it's compromising the gospel culture, which was intended to be radically different. And so to some degree, the worship of multiple gods is being accepted in the Corinthian church. Now a similar thing, something similar to that is happening here in, not necessarily here in our church, but but probably here in our church, but in the church in whole today, that cultural norms are influencing the culture of our churches, which compromises the gospel culture that churches are intended to have. Churches all over the globe are adopting the cultural norm of big ticket uh, issues like abortion and same-sex marriage. And even when it comes to something as foundational as the centrality of the gospel, churches are adopting the the world's uh, open mindset to, to do whatever makes you feel good. Go to, go to wherever makes you feel something special. And so churches are compromising my batteries. Batteries. Just a moment. Yeah, give Corey a hand. All right, so what I was saying is that when a church isn't actively pursuing a gospel-centered culture, it will adopt the cultural norm. This is what Jesus talks about when salt loses its saltiness. And so it's so important for us here at Sacred City Church to actively pursue a gospel culture. What's that mean? To actively pursue what God says in his word, to live life according to his, his way. And so the Corinthians here, they're not doing a very good job of this. And, and their, culture, or their church started adopting this cultural norm. Christians are not only participating in Sunday morning worship like we're doing here where we gather in song and praise and prayer and uh, we're going to take of the Lord's table. But then they're going to other temples. They're going to other places of worship and, and participating uh, in their worship and eating, table, eating food from that table. And they're thinking that it's okay to behave this way as long as most of my worship goes to Jesus. They kind of divvy it up. It's like 60% goes to to Jesus, 15% to the God of fertility, 15% to the health God, and 10% to the God of the sea. And it's okay, 60%, the majority of my worship is going to Jesus. And they think that's okay. But that's not the case. Paul tells us in verse 18 that those who eat and drink sacrifices that are made to other gods, no matter what their intentions are, are participating in the worship of other gods. That any sacrifice that isn't made to the God of the Bible is made, is a sacrifice that's made to demons. And so this is where we, uh, the context in which we understand Paul's main thrust for this morning. And, And you can find that main thrust in verse 21 if you want to look at it with me. It says that you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. 
that you cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. He's, he's telling us that these two things aren't compatible. They're on different ends of the continuum. You cannot worship both God and demons in the same way that you cannot travel both north and south at the same time. You're either moving north or you're moving south. And so that's what, it like, what it's like with our, our worship of God. We either worship God or we're worshiping demons. There is no mix and match like the Corinthians have been doing. There's no little bit of Jesus, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. There's no mix and match. It's, it's all Jesus. It's all the God of the Bible. There's no Jesus plus Buddha, Jesus plus karma, Jesus plus whatever, Jesus plus moralism. There's none of that. It's all Jesus. And so we see that the God of the Bible demands exclusive worship of, the, of Christians because he is the only one, he is the only one who's worthy of receiving our worship. Think about it. Think about our call to worship this morning. Who was it that hung the stars in the sky? Who was it that formed you in your mother's womb? Who was it that made a way for you? Who was it that before the foundations of the world, he had a plan to save you from your worst problems? It wasn't idols. It wasn't false gods. It wasn't any other god but the god of the Bible. So we see that idols... Another, oh, oh, pause. Oh, got my hair there. All right, hopefully we're good now. But idol, what we're seeing here is that idols cannot make a claim. These other gods that, that the Corinthians are going to worship cannot make a claim to this exclusive worship because they don't deserve it. They did none of those things. So not only is God worthy of our worship, verse 22 says, asks the question, should we, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? This shows us that, that God is jealous for our worship. Now, when I say jealous, that might have some negative connotations because you and I can be jealous people. Like when you and I are jealous, we're jealous because we wrongfully think we deserve something and we don't have it. But God has a righteous jealousy. When God is jealous, it means that he deserves something fully, rightly. He rightly deserves stuff, something, but he doesn't get it. And so he's jealous for that worship because he's the only one that's worthy of that worship. So God, he's, Paul's telling us that God deserves more than our half-hearted worship. He, he deserves more than worship that's divided 60 and 40. He deserves all of it. And so this is the message that Paul has for the Corinthians. And this is almost 2,000 years ago he's telling, telling them this. But the same message is, is the same message that he has for us today. That we must choose who we're going to worship. Are we going to worship God or demons? Are we going to go to the table of the Lord? Are we going to drink from the cup of the Lord? Or are we going to go to the, to the table of demons? And this is why this is relevant. And I, I'm going to say something, and it might offend you. you might, there might be a little shock value to it. But, but this is why this is relevant to us. That we are functioning polytheists. Everyone in this room, everyone in this room worships multiple gods. We jump from table to table, from cup to cup, going around trying to find our satisfaction, looking for something to satisfy us, to satisfy our desires. 
One morning we're here at church eating from the table of the Lord. And then later in the afternoon, we're at other tables. Look, and, and some of you might be saying, like, what, well, what do you mean, Sam? This is, the only place, this is the only place where I go to worship. This is the only place where I raise my hands and sing songs. And this is the only place where I go to pray. And I hope that's true. I hope you're not jumping around, going to different, you know, religions and mosques and temples and, and whatever. But, but what I'm talking about is something that your heart does. Your heart runs to places that are not God or are not the Lord's table. We're in search of something. All of us are in search of something. We're looking for peace and comfort. We're looking for value and worth. We're looking for hope and joy. We're looking for power. We're looking for uh, acceptance. And so we go from table to table to table, from cup to cup to cup, looking for those things. So some of you don't believe me, though. Some of you are like, nope, this is the only place I go. God's the only one. And I want to tell you that, that you're deceiving yourself, that you're lying to yourself. Jeremiah says that your heart is deceitfully wicked. So deceitful hearts aren't, aren't good at choosing righteous things. Wicked hearts aren't good at choosing good things. So let me ask you this. What do you do? What do you do when you face uncertainty? What do you do when you face anxiety or, or worry? Do you fight that by planning extensively? Do you make sure that things are going to go your way? You lay out every detail, that you make sure everything's under your control, can't leave anything up to chance? Are you frequently afraid that things might not work out okay without your input? Because of this, because of this fear, you plan, you overplan, you take matters into your own hands, you do things your own way. And this is, this is kind of the only time that you, you feel comfortable, and really it's, it's a fake comfort, but this is the only time where you feel comfortable when you say, I've got it under control. Let me ask you, think about it. How's that going for you? Is that, is that working are you really able to overcome your anxiety, to overcome your worry by planning meticulously? Can you really be in control? The reality is that we as humans have very little control over our lives. There are very few things that we can control. Tim Keller says that 95% of things that happen to us in our life are out of our control. That gives us maybe 5% to work with. And it only takes one situation, it only takes one instance to remind us that we're not in control. It's like when your kid chooses to enter the workforce rather than going to your alma mater. Or when you unexpectedly get pregnant when you weren't hoping to get pregnant. Or, or when you're trying to get pregnant and you can't get pregnant. Like those things show us that we aren't in control. So if you're always trying to be in control, if that's what you're after, is that, if that's what you invest your time, if that's what you invest your energy in, then you're worshiping a control idol. You're going to a different cup. You're going to a different, different table to find something that you can only find God's table. 
Let me ask you this. What makes you feel safe and secure? Is it your bank account? Is it knowing that you've got a retirement account to sit back on? Is it your locked doors and uh, safety windows? Is it tucking your heart away behind those locked doors and, and walls? Do deep relationships scare you? Because you, you know that, that there's a chance of getting hurt. Do you keep people at, at a distance to avoid getting hurt? Or to avoid showing them your true self? I'm going to ask you the same question. How's that going for you? How's that working out? Are you really able to, to maintain your own comfort and your own safety? Can you really keep your heart tucked away from someone who's looking to know you? And there will always be something that upsets this, this false sense of control. That's something that will upset this, this false sense of safety. All it takes is one comment from a friend, from a trusted friend, that upsets you or, or makes you feel uncomfortable. All it takes is that one remark from your, your spouse to make you feel a little bit of hurt. And so the reality is that that these relational safeguards that we put up to guard ourselves, to protect our hearts, they don't work. They don't really keep us safe at all. Because what happens is someone gets through the barrier, someone gets through the wall, someone gets through the door, and we get hurt. And it's like, well, got to put up another door. Got to put up another wall. And C.S. Lewis has this, uh, this, this quote, and I'm not going to quote it, but I'm going to give you the gist of it, that as we, as we hide our hearts away, the more barriers that we put up, trying to separate ourselves from, from feeling a, a, a relationship, something happens to our hearts. Our hearts, in their protection, become unbreakable, that nothing can penetrate it. We can't feel the joy of significant relationships. So your efforts to protect your heart end up ruining your heart because you can't feel any of the joy that God designed our hearts to feel. If you're always concerned about maintaining your comfort and your safety, this is comfort idolatry. You're going to a different place. You're going to a different cup. You're going to a different table to find something that you can only find at the Lord's table. Let me ask you this. Where do you turn to get your validation? Where do you turn, where do you go to, where do you look to find acceptance? Is it from your boss? Are you logging in extra hours beyond what's required of you to, to show him that you are really committed to this company so you can get in his good graces? Is it, is it your kids? Parents, are you, are you trying to find your acceptance in your kids by being the cool parent who never says no? Are you looking to find this acceptance, this validation from your friends, feeling that you almost always have to impress someone to earn their acceptance, that you gotta, gotta you know, have the right car, gotta have the right clothes, gotta do the right things to be accepted by them. Let me ask you this, do you find your acceptance in how well you follow the rules, in how well you can keep your nose clean? Do you feel like God loves you based on your performance based on how long you read your Bible this week or how frequently you prayed 
or how many people you had over to your house this week or how well you did mission with your MC? Do you feel like you have to do that to, to earn God's acceptance? I mean, how's that going for you? How's that performance? How's that trying to earn and earn and earn and, and get and take and, and lay down everything so you can get a little bit of something back? How's that working out for you? Do you think that you're really impressing God with your Bible verse of the day? Do you think you're really impressing God with your, your 15-second prayer before you eat a meal? It is super difficult, super difficult to earn acceptance. And it seems like we kind of at all costs, I know this is where I, I really struggle with this. At all costs, I'll, let, I'll sacrifice my time, I'll sacrifice money, I'll do different things, trying to earn this acceptance. And when you get it, when you, when you kind of pay the cost to have this acceptance, maintaining it is even harder. You just got to keep going. It just kind of chips more and more away from you. It's, a, it's like a never-ending treadmill. Being subject to the approval and validations of others is exhausting. It'll burn you out, and it'll make your heart hard. Not only that, but in you trying to perform and trying to earn the acceptance, you'll, you'll kind of try to suck people into that too. Like you're thinking, I'm trying to work hard. I'm trying to earn this acceptance. Now you have to work hard to earn my acceptance. It blows back on other people. And that ends up ruined relationships. It's difficult. If this is you, if this is you, you feel like you're always striving, always performing to earn something, then you're, you're going to an idol of performance to worship. That's where you're going to eat. That's the cup that you're drinking from. But those are just a few examples. There are many, many more. And Justin and, and Dr. Casey ha, over the last couple of weeks have laid out some, some really clear idolatry things that we face in our culture today. So if, you, if like none of those things resonate with you, it might be good to go back and listen to those sermons. Kind of listen, like where is my heart going to? What table, what cup am I going to to find my satisfaction? But no matter who you are, you, your worship is divided between God and fading comforts and pleasures this world offers. We all frequently, and not just, not just, this isn't like an occasional thing like I did this last month. We frequently go to different tables and different cups to find what will satisfy our desires. And the thing that all these cups share in common is that they don't satisfy, they will let you down, and there's an expiration date on what you're looking for. These heart idols that we worship, the things that we chase now, are just as futile as the, the cups and the tables that the pagan gods went to 2,000 years ago. They're just as futile. And so when we understand that, that Paul's um, talking about, what, what he's talking about in our passage today um, applies to us because we are all chasing after heart idols, this makes a lot more sense. Things are a lot more pressing because we are put in the position now where we have to choose. Are we going to choose to worship the God of the Bible? Are we going to worship Jesus? Are we going to eat from his table and drink from his cup? Or are we going to choose to worship demons? 
Are we going to go to their cup, go to their table? And it, on paper, it seems like an easy decision, right? Like, a lot of you are like, well, you got me convinced. I'm, like, I think I'm going to choose God. If that's my choice between demons and God, well, that's obviously going to be my choice. We can make a little uh, a spreadsheet, pros and cons. Like, uh, pros, I either follow God, who is life-giving, or demons, who are out to crush me. I choose the God who, who shows us grace, or demons who want us to feel the justice and wrath of God. I can choose God who is truthful and always keeps his promises. Or I can choose demons who lie to us and try to break us down. I can choose a God who fixes our brokenness. Or demons who exploit our brokenness. It's clear. It's an easy choice. And we have to, all we have to do is choose to worship God. And then we will experience true comfort true acceptance, true safety, all the desires of our heart will be met. Sounds simple, but the bad news is that um, it's impossible for us to do this. And the reason why it's impossible is because we have a broken chooser. Got a broken chooser. We cannot choose God. our, Our chooser tells us, always leans us in the direction of demons. And this has been this way ever since Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit that God told them not to eat. That's where our broken chooser started. Adam and Eve were the first ones to turn from God's satisfying table of provision and eat from a different table. And with that one choice came all destruction, all pain, all suffering, all shame, all identity confusion, doubt, and all failure that we would ever experience. And ultimately, ultimately these things lead to death. Because of that one meal apart from God's table, we are only capable, we are only capable of choosing things that bring destruction, that bring hardship, that bring that, that keep us from experiencing true joy, true hope, true love, true comfort, true safety, true acceptance, and true life. And the reason that we keep choosing those things, we keep choosing the wrong things, is because it's not an intellectual thing, like, like where we can sit and consciously make the decision, okay, here I go, I'm going to choose the right thing starting now. It doesn't work that way. The reason... The reason that we can't choose those things is because our affections are set on the lesser things. Our affections are set on things of demons. And that sounds kind of bleak, but our affections are set on something that's far too small. There's a a great quote from a Puritan named Thomas Boston that really um, displays this. He says that the natural man's affections are wretchedly misplaced. He is a spiritual monster. His heart is where his feet should be fixed on the earth. His heels are lifted up against heaven, which is where his heart should be set on. His face is towards hell, his back toward heaven, and therefore God calls him to turn. He loves what he should hate and hates what he should love. He joys in what he ought to mourn and mourns for what he should rejoice in. He glories in his shame and is ashamed of his glory. He abhors what he should desire and desires what he should abhor. 
man is constantly choosing the wrong things. It's because our affections are set on the wrong thing. But let's say that you do get sick of choosing evil. Like, we can cognitively make the decision, like, I think good is better than evil. I think God is better than demons. You still can't make that choice because deep down your affections are still set on evil. It's like how a drug addict finds great difficulty in choosing sobriety over another hit. Christians find great difficulty in choosing God over wickedness. Paul talks about this struggle in Romans 7. He says that I have desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Do you see the dilemma that we're put in here? We must choose God. We must choose God, but we can't. We can't do it because our affections and worship is fixed on lesser things. Even if we wanted to choose God, we are incapable. And that's kind of depressing. Like Paul's giving you a choice, choose God or choose demons. It sounds pretty black and white. But even then, it seems like he's dangling something in front of us that we can't have, that we are incapable of choosing God. But thankfully, God does not let the story end like that. There is a solution to your broken chooser problem. God sends Jesus, the only one who ever walked the earth, who did not inherit a broken chooser. All of Jesus' life, in all things, he chooses to worship and to walk with God perfectly. Even in the face of Satan and the most intense temptation, Jesus always chose God perfectly. His affections were always set on God. And Jesus, Jesus is the only one, the only one without a broken chooser. And because he's the only one without a broken chooser, he gets the benefits. He gets, he gets the reward from always choosing God. He, he's able to know the deep comfort, the deep safety, the deep, deep satisfaction, know the acceptance, know the love, know the joy and the hope that he gets from choosing God. He's the perfect chooser. And as the perfect chooser, this is, this is crazy. As the perfect chooser, Jesus perfectly chooses imperfect choosers. The perfect chooser perfectly chooses imperfect choosers. A Jesus chooses the ones, the imperfect choosers, that's us, the people who've got the small affections, the sm- people whose desires on, are set on things of wickedness, and he chooses us. How does that happen? It doesn't make sense. So, so Jesus chooses people who are completely incapable of choosing him. It's you and me. And he chooses them, and he, the most undeserving people, what he does is he clears their track record of any faulty choosing. All the bad choosing that we've done, all the mistakes, all the times where we've gone to a different cup or a different table, Jesus takes the punishment for that. And he takes it, that punishment on the cross. 
He feels the separation. He feels, he feels the bad stuff that comes with choosing idols on the cross. But then what Jesus also does is that he credits us with this perfect record. The perfect choosing that he's done to earn him reward, he, he credits us with that. So it's like that you and I have always chose perfectly. It's crazy. It doesn't make sense. I can look at my, I can look at my day so far. It's only, it's only uh, I can't read a clock. It's 10, 1040. And I've already made numerous choice errors. But just think, go back in your life. Think all the times that you've, you've chosen wickedness over, over God and his glory. All those have been cleared away, and he's credited us. He's credited us with his perfect record. And then, and then what, what happens next is that through the Holy Spirit, Jesus gives us the ability to choose God. He gives us a new chooser. That now uh, our choosers are placed. We can choose God and choose to live for him. We can choose to go to his table because he has first chose us. So now what Paul's telling us to do to make the choice between the table of the Lord and the table of demons is actually possible. It's actually possible now. We can go, we can eat at the table of the Lord. We can eat, drink from the Lord's cup without turning to other tables. Guys, that's good news. We are, we are off the train that's headed into a brick wall. Like, we're freed from the, from the bad choosing. and We're now able to choose. We're able to choose God because of what Jesus has done. And so I kind of want to take our focus and turn now towards the Lord's table because this is the, the main support to Paul's message in choosing and choosing the exclusivity of, of Christianity, choosing God or demons. So let's, let's look at um, verses 16 and 17 here. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation of the blood of Christ? He's asking a, kind of a rhetorical question here. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. There's a key word in, that, in those passages. It kind of repeats itself, that participation. It's a, the Greek word is koinonia. And what that means is it's a, a sharing. It's a close association, a fellowship, a close relationship. And this is a benefit of the gospel right here. That, that the gospel doesn't just make us onlookers, like cheerleaders on the sideline. The gospel brings us into the game. That we are made participants. And that happens in two ways. One way that we see is that that we're made participants with one another. That as we approach the Lord's table, we come as a community. We come as a family. That, that this meal binds us together. But even more significant than that, because that, that is significant, but even more significant, more mind-blowing, is that this meal makes us a participant with Christ himself. 
that this is an active, common share in the life, death, resurrection, and presence of Jesus Christ as Lord. That we participate in that. So in the Lord's table, we experience a union, a deep fellowship with the Lord. Right here, right now, we experience the real presence of God. And this meal is more than just a memory. It's more than just a memorial meal. We aren't reenacting the sacrifice of Jesus because that's been done once and for all. We aren't just trying to reenact a historical event and pay homage to the, the Lord's or the Last Supper. Like it's more than just a memory. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Richard Barcellos puts it this way. The bread and wine are signs which signify the present participation or present communion in, and in the present benefits procured by Christ's body and blood. Grace procured by what Christ did for us becomes ours. It becomes ours through the Lord's Supper. This is a means of grace. And what that means is that this, this Lord's uh, Supper is, is a vehicle. It's a vehicle that God uses to get grace from heaven to earth. When you turn on your faucet, water comes out, right? But how's the water get there? The water travels through pipes and gets to the faucet, but are the pipes the source of the water? No. The water comes from a well. The pipes are just a means of getting the water from the well to the faucet. And so the same is true of the Lord's Supper. This is a vehicle. This is a means of receiving the grace from heaven and experiencing it here on earth. There's a, a tangible grace that is received here. Not just a happy thought, not just a, a, a cool idea or a memory. This is a tangible grace that we receive through the Lord's Supper. And it's this grace, it's this grace that we receive at the Lord's table that sustains us. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, at this table, Jesus feeds us with his body and with his blood. And this isn't in like a weird cannibal way where the, the wine morphs into blood and the bread turns into flesh. It's not like that. It's a spiritual feast. It's a way where Christ spiritually allows us to feed on him. It's a soul-nourishing and uh, faith-strengthening meal. And it's at this table where we find what we're looking for at all the other tables and all the cups that we go to. We find that God is trustworthy in making a way for us. He sacrificed his only son so that there would be a way for us. We find that God is our safety and our refuge, that he is the only one that can protect us. We find that it's Jesus' perfect performance that brings us to the table, not, not in us earning our acceptance. And it's with acceptance and approval that the Lord welcomes us to the table. He calls us in. He beckons us. And when we're eating at the Lord's table, when we're going to the Lord's table, 
Guys, it doesn't make sense to go anywhere else. When we see what it is, when we see the grace that is to be had, when we see that God satisfies completely, it does not make sense to go anywhere else. It'd be like choosing a box of macaroni and cheese over a a world-class chef. It just doesn't make sense. Not only does that macaroni and cheese offer less flavor, like we're talking about noodles and cheese here. Like not a lot of flavor happens in macaroni and cheese. But that macaroni and cheese is not good for your body. If you, the only thing you eat is macaroni and cheese, Lord have mercy. It's not good for you. And so the Lord's table, it brings us grace that will satisfy your deepest desires and will nourish your faith. So as I close, I want, to think, I want you to think on a few things as you prepare to take the Lord's table. First, that, that this is a meal, this is a meal that's taken with great reverence and joy. So this is what I mean. In great reverence, we reflect. There's, there's three Three tenses of this Lord's Supper. First, in the past tense, we reflect on what Jesus did in spilling his blood and the breaking of his bread in his body. We reflect on the past tense and what's been done. And that, that grieves us. That brings us to a place of, of, of mourning uh, because it was ultimately our sins that got his blood spilled. It was, a, it was our wrong choosing that led to him being crucified. And so we come remembering that. But in the present tense, we also are able to find great joy because we are participating. We get to experience the benefits of the Lord right here and right now. But with that comes a future meal. It it points ahead to a feast that is to come, a great wedding wedding feast where Jesus Christ, the groom, will celebrate with his bride, with the church. And there'll be one things will be bliss. And so we look forward to that meal too with great joy and great anticipation. So don't, don't make the mistake of rushing through this meal. Don't make the mistake of dipping the bread and popping it in your mouth and just walking back and not, not even giving it a second thought. This is a meal that's meant to be taken with great reverence and great joy. And honestly, this is the most important meal that you'll, you'll eat all week. This, this meal proclaims Christ's death. It reminds us of what the Savior did for us. And it also brings us the joy that will come. It gives us a renewed confidence that our sins are forgiven, that Christ is ours and that we are his. And it gives us the expectation of what, what's to come. Secondly, Receive this meal with outstretched hands. Come to the table with nothing but open hands. This is a reminder that you don't bring anything. You don't offer God anything. It's a gift. It's a gift to you. You did nothing to earn this seat at the table, so receive it as such. Thirdly, eat this meal expecting God to change your life. Grace changes you. And this meal is a means of grace. It's it's meant to change us. So the more we feed on Christ, the more we let our affections dwell on him, 
the more our hearts will change, the more, the more we will choose God, the more we will turn to Christ rather than wickedness and, and deceitful things. And like Paul said, like he said to the Corinthians, you cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons. You can't do it. So before you come to this table, examine your heart. What are you holding on to? What idols are you chasing? Where is it that you're going for, for acceptance and comfort and, and safety? Where are you looking for joy and peace? And repent of those things. Turn from those things. Turn from those things and cling to God. Cling to Jesus. Receive the body and the blood and cling to it. Before I invite the baptized believers to come and take of this meal, I want, I want you to, to just take some time and reflect on this. What does it mean to participate with the Lord? What does that mean to have the blessings of heaven here and now? How will this change my life? So take a couple minutes and pray. Go before the Lord and ask him. Let him show you how this is a means of grace. This is something very significant.